Let me take you on a journey to the coldest place on earth and its last and greatest wilderness, on a voyage to Antarctica. Hello and welcome to A Voyage to Antarctica, brought to you by the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. I'm Alok Jha. We've all learnt a thing or two about endurance in the past year, but few people know what endurance means better than Felicity Aston, an Antarctic scientist turned polar explorer. In 2012, Felicity became the first woman to ski solo across the Antarctic landmass, a journey of more than 1,000 miles that took her 59 days and earned her a place in the Guinness Book of World Records. Felicity's gone on to organise and lead numerous expeditions to remote places around the world, but particularly to the polar regions. Her expeditions have included the first British women's crossing of Greenland, a 6,000-kilometre drive to the South Pole, and leading international teams of women on ski expeditions to both the North and South Poles. She's been appointed MBE for Services to Polar Exploration and awarded the Polar Medal for Services to the Antarctic and Arctic. Felicity, you're an explorer, somebody who's been through incredible hardships uh, as in, during your expeditions. You know, you know what endurance means uh, inside and out. I just wonder, how have you dealt with the lockdown this past year? Uh, I feel myself to have been very fortunate because I've been locked down uh, in Iceland, right in the north of Iceland. Um, so we have quite a lot of freedom here. There's a lot of easily accessible open space and not many people. So uh, we've been really lucky in that respect. But it's amazing how a lot of the lessons I learned on expeditions um, made such a lot of sense in lockdown. For example, expeditions are ruled by routine. Certainly mine are. Um, you know, it's routine from the moment I open my eyes to the moment I, I go to sleep at the end of the day uh, because uh, having a really strict routine helps to sort of take the emotion out of what you're doing. You know, you're not constantly trying to find the motivation to do every single little thing. It's just if you have a routine, it sort of gives you a sense of momentum that powers you through a day, whether it's a great day or not. Um, and so using that in in lockdown was really useful. I, I think maybe everyone has had a touch of the experience of if you don't have a routine, if you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to stay in my pajamas all day today. And uh, oh, maybe I won't even bother having a shower today. Or, uh, you know, all that sort of thing. Suddenly, all the days roll into one, you can't remember what the date is, you don't know what time of day it is. And it just feels after a while, it, you know, that that ceases to be a joy and a luxury, and it just becomes a big depressing muddle. So just describe for me the first time you actually went down to Antarctica. You, you know, this was something you'd expected to do. It was something that you you thought was going to happen anyway. But what, when, when, you, when you got there, just describe that first moment for me. I arrived by ship um, because a lot of people do when you work for the big government programs. Uh, it's the main way that you get down there. So, you know, I had, I think it was a three-week voyage from the Falkland Islands um, down to Rotherham Research Station. And, uh, and it's not so much the moment that we arrived that I remember so clearly. It was about maybe a month into my time there. And it was the first time that 
I got on a snowmobile and drove away from the base, maybe, I don't know, 10 kilometers, something like that, uh, to go and record some measurements from some snow stake arrays that we had up there. And so I was on my own for the first time, a significant distance from base. And uh, there was just this beautiful sort of snowy plateau with these uh, really triangular dark rock peaks sticking up through the ice. And it was just so perfect. So, you know, all the snow was perfectly white, perfectly smooth, just all these beautiful blended colors. And then there was that sort of clean, cold freshness to the air, but it was a beautiful sunny day. And it just felt like a moment of absolute euphoria. I felt like I wanted to extend out my arms and just scoop up the whole wonderful beauty, pristineness, you know, perfection that it was and uh and it was the first time in my life that I thought yeah you know this this is for me this is what I want to do I want to be here and it was the first time I'd ever felt like that about anywhere um so it was a really sort of striking moment was it a surprising feeling I don't remember being surprised as much as just you know elated that I'd found something that just sang to me in this way um because that had not happened to me before. I mean, I I went to Antarctica, I guess, with a certain amount of expectation because, you know, now in retrospect, I realise so clearly how particularly having grown up in Britain and, you know, having this culture around us, Antarctica is such a, a part of our culture, this whole idea of stoicism, of what it means to be a strong person, of what it means to you know, be, be a good, decent person, you know, quite a lot of that. Uh, you know, Antarctica is, is something that's in our brain as a place where you go to prove yourself, where you go to find out who you are, where, you know, you come back with this big perspective and these big revelations. So, uh, you know, for sure, when I went to Antarctica, knowing that I was going to be there for two years, more than two years, um, you know, I expected to be finding things out about myself as well as, the landscape that I was visiting, um, but I, I, you know, that that moment was a was a surprise to me. I hadn't meant to, I hadn't realised, you know, it would affect me in quite that way. What made you want to go to Antarctica in the first place? So when I first went to Antarctica, I was a brand new graduate, straight out of university, and I got a job with the British Antarctic Survey, and it was my first ever proper job. So. It didn't even occur to me why I wouldn't want to go to Antarctica. It was a huge, exciting adventure, and I couldn't think of anything else um, that I would rather be doing. It was only now that I'm, what, 30, 20 years older, um, and I've got my own family and lots more responsibilities. That I look back on that and think, oh, actually, yeah, you know, that, that was quite a big decision to make to go to Antarctica. Um, uh, and, and because at the time for the British Antarctic Survey, it was a standard contract of 39 months. So you were committing to being down in Antarctica and you know not leaving Antarctica for pretty much two and a half years. Um, but at the time, it wasn't really a very difficult choice. I wanted to go and uh, it was hugely exciting. I couldn't think of a reason why I wouldn't want to go. Perhaps it's worth just understanding a little bit about your research as well. So you 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 say you're working for the British Antarctic Survey. What what kind of research were you engaged in at the time? 
so I was employed as a meteorologist and my um, my main function was climate monitoring, which is a, a, a long term program that happens in Antarctica um, and also looking at monitoring ozone as well, uh, because this was 2000 to 2003. Uh, so the seasonal thinning of the ozone layer was something um, that was still pretty new. Um, they weren't sure what was going to happen with that. So it was a really important area of research. And then on top of that, there was a, another layer in terms of operational meteorology because I was posted to Rothera Research Station, which is uh, the largest of the UK's two research facilities. And it has a, a rock runway, which is unique in Antarctica. So the aircraft operations running through Rothera um, was really important. And uh, so we had quite a lot of... Uh, operational uh, meteorology to do with the aircraft um, as well as the as the purely scientific stuff now, now you you um you've, you've hinted at it here already that you spent two almost two, well two years more than two years on antarctica continuously which it boggles my mind that someone would go for that long to be honest and i'm someone who thinks that antarctica is a wonderful place and, and i think everyone should go if they if they possibly can in some form but two years is a long time especially given that of course in the antarctic winter for up to six months of the year there's no light at all you're you're in pitch black um never mind the cold and the wind and all of these other things um so it does sound like a very unpleasant place in that respect did that did that not concern you when you were on your way there um there were concerns there were worries you know I, i worried when i was packing you know am i packing the right things do i have enough of everything um you know, and what are the people going to be like? Because you're right. I mean, I turned up at Rothera in December of the year 2000. And that's kind of already halfway through the summer season in Antarctica. And the idea of that long contract length was that you would complete a summer season sort of settling in, but then you would do your first winter season. And that's um, you know, really the first test, if you like, because uh, you're there with just a skeleton crew of about 20 people, whereas in the summer there can be up to 85 people. And it's quite a busy place. You know, people are coming and going to forward field sites and all sorts of things. But in the winter, you know, everyone is on the base and it's just 20 of you. And you don't know who those people are really until you get there. I mean, I'd met them once at the sort of training conference that you have, but not in any you know meaningful way. Um, and so uh, that's really your first test. Uh, and then you have a, another summer and then you have a second consecutive winter. The idea being that... Um, you know, the first winter, you're just kind of getting to know the ropes, whereas the second winter, you're an experienced veteran and you're able to pass on some of your knowledge to the people within the team for whom that's their first winter, you see. And then you do a, a third and final summer before you come home. But, um, you know, it, it, it's it's so challenging in all sorts of ways because, you know, Antarctica is not in this instance, somewhere you're visiting to take lots of pictures and see the wildlife. It's, you know, you're arriving there knowing that this is going to be your place of work. So that adds pressure because it's not just settling into the buildings that you're living in and getting to know the people that you're going to be living with. Um, but you've also got to get to grips with the job that you're supposed to be doing. Um, 
And then, you know, we weren't, we were in, I mean, the base was a, was a pretty comfy place. <laughs> it was, Comfortable is not a word I associate with, the, with, with Antarctic, uh, Antarctic living, please. Yeah, it's, it's pretty institutional. I mean, in the <laughs> summer, you know, you had a room where up to four people would be sleeping in that same room with you. Um, but then when we got to my first winter, they just opened a whole new block of accommodation. So you shared a room with just one other person. There were only two people to a room and you each had your own bathroom. So you were only sharing a bathroom with one other person rather than up to 40 people, um, as it was when I first got there. But of course, you know, during the winter, you expand to fill this place. When it's just 20 of you, this place becomes your home. And you know, the 20 people that you're there with, you're not just working with them, you're eating breakfast, lunch and dinner with them. And then you're socializing with them in the bar in the evening and at the weekends, if you want to go skiing, you have to go with somebody else. So, you know, it's not just a matter of them being your colleagues. They're like your housemates, your colleagues. Um, and in some cases, you know, the, the nemesis of your of your days, you know, you sort of went through phases of, of getting on really well and then, uh, you know, not getting on so well. Um, but that was all part of the challenge of it. So you were challenged in every single way, professionally, personally. Um, you were challenged in terms of the environment outside the window, but also the environment inside those buildings. Um, and I guess that's why you know, people say that you learn as much about yourself as you do about Antarctica, um, because it's it's challenging in, in so many different aspects. Hello, I'm Camilla Nichols, CEO of the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust, and I hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. We work to preserve and protect Antarctica's unique heritage, from the historic huts of early pioneers to the amazing discoveries in climate science. And our mission is to inspire current and future generations to discover, value and protect this precious wilderness. The pandemic has had a significant impact on our work, and we need your generosity now more than ever. Find out how you can help save Antarctica, protect our planet and even adopt a penguin at UKAHT.org. Or search for the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the podcast. Now, given your sort of rich heritage with the scientific research that the British Antarctic Survey was doing, the you know having to do the work on the meteorology and then all the other things that the British Antarctic Survey does, being part of this big system of of Antarctic research that goes that stretches back um, many many decades, um, I wonder what made you want to go to Antarctica by yourself for the first time. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, this was many years after I left. Uh, I left rather a research station, probably about ten years. And what had happened in those intervening years was that um, I'd become more and more interested in the sort of expedition side of uh, polar travel. So I'd left uh, the British Antarctic Survey and I started putting together my own expeditions, uh, going to places like uh, Greenland and uh, Siberia, um, anywhere really cold. Uh, But then eventually going back to Antarctica and putting together some expeditions there. Um, So it was a sort of gradual process. You know, each expedition was more challenging for me personally than the one before, you know, there was something about it that scared me and that's what made me wanting, wanted to do it. And throughout all of these, um, so over those 10 years, there was this kind of idea bubbling away in the back of my mind because um, I was then familiar with how empty 
the landscape in Antarctica is. It's vast, it's ancient, and there is no sort of human footprint there. There's no human culture. I mean, the barest, barest scratches. Um, but, uh, you know, and so I was interested, what would it feel like to be there on my own? You know, what would it feel like to be in this very empty landscape when you're not surrounded by a team, when you don't have that support and that motivation of the people around you? And then the idea of crossing from one coast to the other, um, there was something about the simplicity and yet the completeness of doing that. I mean, there was nothing, nothing in my motivation that was anything to do with any sense of conquering or, you know, overcoming or anything like that. It was more out of curiosity. And, you know, I got this huge sense of it would be a massive privilege to be able to see a, a cross section of Antarctica like that. You know, this place that at that stage in my life had been such a huge part of my entire adult life. Uh, you know, to have the opportunity to go and do an expedition like that, um, you know, I, I just thought was uh, a lifetime's opportunity, as and it was. So in 2012, you, you became the first woman to ski across Antarctica alone. Um, and I just wonder how you physically and mentally prepare for something like that. Let, let's start with the, the, the practical stuff. You know, what, what do you do? How do you plan something like that? Um, you, I'm assuming you don't just turn up with some skis at one edge of Antarctica and just hope to make it to the other end. What do you do? What do you plan? No, well, there's an awful lot of planning that goes into these expeditions. Uh, you know, this one was actually quite a short one to prepare for. It was about a year in preparation. But that's only because in the years before that, I had been doing, you know, expeditions on a sort of annual basis. So, you know, a, a lot of those connections, a lot of those relationships were already in place to to get those logistics ready. Um you know, my own sort of training uh, and skill level had been slowly built up over the previous 10 years. And it wasn't just about learning how to use the equipment. Uh, it was about gaining the confidence to put yourself in a really sort of exposed position. Um, because where I started that expedition, it sort of felt like it was on the wrong side of Antarctica. Uh, so most of the logistics, most of the planes and things like that, they're all over on the um, the sort of Weddell Sea side, the peninsula side of, of Antarctica. Um, whereas I started my um, traverse on the Ross Sea side of Antarctica. And that felt, yeah, really quite lonely <laughs> quite like those lines those logistics lines those very thin sort of safety nets that you had felt very stretched um by going right over the other side of the continent to start um so it was building up the confidence more than anything else um uh, that was vital in the preparation and did you train Yes. I mean, uh, training physically uh, at that point, because I was doing expeditions so regularly, um, you know, training was uh, you know, just a, a, a standard part of, of my life then. So I was already 
pretty physically fit, but I did specific training in the build up to this expedition, a lot of work on endurance. So it's not just about sort of sweating it out on a treadmill. It was about um, hours spent uh, dragging tires, um, just just building up that stamina and that endurance. But that's as much about building up your mental stamina and endurance as it is about building up your muscles. Um, you know, it's just about getting used to the idea of keeping going hour after hour, just spending those hours on your feet, you know, and, and moving. Um, but it, it was, you know, I certainly felt I had a responsibility to make sure I was as prepared as possible because I was very conscious of the fact that in choosing to put myself out there on my own, you know, if I got into trouble, if I gave up, um, you know, somebody would have to come back out to get me. And every flight that's made in Antarctica, there is a risk inherent in that. You know, it's not a safe place to be flying around. And so in a very real way, you know, you're asking others to put themselves at a higher risk um, just because you want to do something. So, uh, you know, I, I felt I had a big responsibility to make sure that I was as prepared as I possibly could be. Um to yeah, make sure that I wouldn't be asking people to put themselves in harm's way. What's the mental preparation like? You you, you hinted at this already. Um, what do you have to do to prepare yourself mentally? And what is it about the, the 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 mental toll that something like a project like this would take on you that you have to sort of really be aware of? Yeah, I mean, mental preparation uh, is a big part of the training for all my expeditions, you know, even my, my team expeditions, it's a massive consideration right from the start. And I think it has to be, but it's surprising how often, uh, you know, training for doing expeditions like this includes barely any mental training. And yet, you know, the journey is so much more about what's going on in your head than it is about uh, the size of your muscles or your physical condition. Um, how do you mean? How do you, you mean? Know, That's a really interesting thing to say because obviously it is a physical exertion like no other. It is, but it's far more about the sort of mental fortitude to keep going. Um, you know, I've seen incredibly strong people. You know, physically uh, incredibly capable people, and yet for whatever reason they haven't had the right mental direction. You know, maybe it's because there's things going on in their life that has taken their attention away. Maybe it's because, you know, they don't really want to be there for some reason. Maybe, you know, there's a hundred different reasons why somebody's head isn't fully engaged in what they're doing. Um, but that means that, you know, ultimately they failed. Whereas I've seen people who have been physically very petite, you know, physically um, not so strong. And yet, you know, there is a determination and underlying mental strength, mental toughness that you just get a sense right from the get-go, you know, they are not going to let anything stop them. And, you know, that's carried them through, even though physically they've not been as strong. Um, and, you know, it's something that in a place like Antarctica, I'm willing to bet anyone who's spent any length of time there will have seen this over and over again, that uh, it is so much more about where your head is at than, uh, than physically where you are. 
I just wonder what you thought about endurance um, as a sort of, in in historical terms, um, Antarctic endurance is a very masculine thing. Um, you know, it's all the, 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 the great explorers, the 1912, 1913, uh, and Scott Shackleton, all these people, they, they did some incredible things. And, you know, of course, Shackleton's ship was even called the Endurance. So it, it really is essentially wedded to the idea of heroic activity back then. And for many, many reasons that, as we've discussed on this podcast as well, women were shut out of that uh, for a long time. And it's taken a long time for women to be um, involved in Antarctic research and Antarctic exploration in the way that, um, you know, that, that men have been for a very long time. Um, but it's, um, you know, it's the, the, the hangover is still there, that endurance, toughness is a male thing. Now, I don't think anyone, anyone would argue now that, that that's simply the preserve of men. And in, in fact, there's probably lots of evidence to show that women uh, who are ultra-endurance athletes tend to, tend to do better than, than men in similar situations. I just wonder what you think about that. What do, do, what do you think about the sort of the genderedness of, of endurance and the way we think about it? Yeah, so, I mean, it's a perception that, like you say, is still very much out there. You know, I get told a lot, oh, what is it like going to Antarctica when, you know, it's just men that go to Antarctica? And so I find myself... Uh, frequently sort of correcting people and saying, well, no, actually, there's, you know, if you go to an Antarctic research station now, you're likely to find as many women there as men. And, uh, you know, since, I guess, the early 90s, you know, there's been lots of women that have made some astonishing journeys. And as you say, it seems that uh, when you get to sort of ultra endurance and ultra distance marathons and um, undertakings, that the difference between the performance of the genders tends to narrow somewhat. I mean, I know that in some of the um, really ultra, ultra distance marathons, um, you know, they don't even have a separate male and female field. You know, everyone competes against each other because, uh, and interestingly, it tends to be women that are slightly older that do better. So sort of late 40s, early 50s. Um, You know, there is something about endurance where women really hit some kind of sweet spot um, when they're in kind of that age group. And so if you look back, particularly at sort of polar expeditions, um, you know, you had Lee Varnason, uh, the Norwegian who uh, went solo to the South Pole in, I think it was 94. And then she and Anne Bancroft, the American polar explorer who'd already skied to the South Pole, um, you know, did a huge crossing of Antarctica in 2000. Um, and then, uh, for example, as we stand at the moment, the person who's skied to the South Pole more times than anyone else is uh, a British woman, um, Hannah McKeon, um, who, when she went to the South Pole solo, sort of smashed the speed record and made everyone sort of sit up and go, oh, my goodness, you know, and she smashed it by so much that then there was a big run for a few years after that to sort of get this speed record down as low as, as low. And now I think it's something like 27 days, uh, the speed record of skiing to the South Pole. But so, you know, there are incredible stories of women who have really been at the forefront of polar exploration and sporting expeditions, um, incredible feats of endurance. But somehow that hasn't sort of leaked through into the general consciousness, uh, the general perception of polar exploration and sporting expeditions and endurance, as you say. So I, I'm not sure why that is. Is it because people are less interested in these stories? Is it because 
you know, they're not being reported enough? Is it because they're not uh, sort of supported and sponsored and therefore don't get the same press? Or, you know, I'm not sure what the answer is, but uh, for sure, it's definitely still there's a there's a gap in the perception. People still see it very much as a male dominated preserve, um, whereas that certainly hasn't been my experience, although, you know, a lot of uh, the Antarctic expeditions that I've done in, in mixed groups, I've been the only woman or one of very few women. But, you know, there are women out there doing amazing things. Um, and as you say, really proving the point that uh, women have a, a capability for endurance that certainly in the heroic age of exploration, people like Scott Shackleton Nansen would, I imagine, never have credited um, I wonder, you say, in, in the public consciousness, perhaps it hasn't quite filtered through yet, but I wonder at the sort of elite explorer level amongst the, your, your peers and the exploring uh, community, the people who do these things all the time, is it, is it well accepted that men and women are equally capable of doing these things and should be doing these things? I do notice when I've been out on an expedition with an all-female team and we come back having done really well, People will say things to us like, you were really lucky with the weather, weren't you? Oh, you know, you guys, you were, you know, you were really lucky. There wasn't so much sastrugi this year or, you know, things like that. And I do, you know, it makes me rile a little bit because, you know, when an all-male expedition comes in, you don't hear that so much <laughs> being said. And you, you do think, oh, you know, why do you have to do that? You know, don't, and, uh, you know, I still get things thrown at me like, oh, I bet you girls had a lot of fun out there doing that. Oh, no. And you know, you did not say that to <laughs> yeah, some of my male colleagues when they came in, probably because you get a bop on the nose, I would imagine. But um so there, there is still a, a little bit of a way to go, I think. Um, oh, and, you know, for example, just the other week, there was a, an event that was focused on endurance. And I noticed uh, that the lineup of speakers was completely male. Um, you know, and again, you just sort of think, you know, there really is no excuse for that now. And it's really, uh, I think, quite damaging when you know, I'm also contacted by schools, uh, teachers who have been appalled by the fact that when they've talked about exploration to their class of eight-year-olds, eight year um, the general consensus has been that, oh, no, you know, girls aren't explorers, uh, boys are explorers. And that's so upsetting to hear that now because, you know, I think um, – you know, all the women that are polar explorers out there kind of assumed that we've made it better for the next generation somehow. But so to hear that that is still something that is being spoken and and um, expressed by eight year eight year olds is, you know, really quite depressing and demoralizing. But you know, it just means that we have to work harder to you know change that perception and make sure that. Uh, that everyone is aware of everybody that goes and does great things. But I, I think it's, you know, makes it more clear that representation is so important. And particularly in this past year where we've had uh, big movements like Black, Black Lives Matter, um, you know, representation in all sorts of ways is so important. It's not just about making the women feel better that they're being represented. It's about, you know, knowing, letting girls know that uh, you know they can do anything um 
and it's really important. Just just on that point, actually, um, why why is it that you think that the 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 whole world should have access to the insights or even to the ability to perhaps g- go to places like this? What is it about the whole world understanding this that is really important? I think the importance of that now is that in the future that we have coming up very fast, in the next few decades, certainly in the next century, we need people out there achieving what feels impossible. You know, we need some big solutions. We need some big answers. We need some, you know, incredible things to be happening. And people don't go out with huge ambitions unless they've been inspired and, you know, I was inspired, um, you know, the, the ideas I've had, the things I've wanted to go out and do, those ideas have come from somewhere. And, you know, it, it filters in from what you see around you. And uh, I mean, there's a there's a phrase, isn't there? You don't become what you can't see, um, you know. And, and so if we don't inspire the next generation, if we don't inspire our own generation, you know, let's not lay it all on the kids. See, it's up to us too. Um, you know, we all need to be so ambitious in the years that are ahead of us as a species um, that, you know, now it's more important than I think it's ever been before that um, we're really emphasizing the fact that we can go out and do amazing things. And, and a brilliant way of doing that is reminding people of what has been done in the past. You mentioned Shackleton earlier, you know, that story of survival uh, when uh, the endurance sank beneath the ice and he refused to give in and and got all his men safely away. Um, You know, the stories of the first teams to get to the South Pole, um, you know, hugely ambitious undertakings and inspirational stories. Felicity, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Can I just finish by asking you one thing which we're asking all of our uh, interviewees for this podcast. Why does Antarctica matter to you? Perspective. You get uh, a perspective in Antarctica that I don't think anywhere else on the planet certainly um, gives you uh, because it is so other. It's so vast. It's so ancient. Um, and it's so untouched by humans still that you get a sense of perspective of yourself, but also of us as a species. Um, and Antarctica, there's something about the, the emptiness of it um, and the, the sort of permanence and yet the fragility of the place that just you come away with a renewed perspective. And I don't think necessarily you have to be there maybe to, to gain that. I think, um, again, in the, in the world that we're moving towards, Antarctica is becoming a, a symbol, I think, that um, that achieves that same sense of perspective. Um, that And it's a, a perspective that we really need. Felicity, thank you very, very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. A Voyage to Antarctica is brought to you by the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. Next time, I'll be talking to Dr. Susie Imber about the extraordinary space research happening in Antarctica, from studying the night sky and collecting meteorites to testing robots which might one day look for extraterrestrial life. To find out more about our guests, including photos and videos, head to our website at www.ukaht.org.
or follow our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram pages. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to follow us and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is part of the Trust's Antarctica Insight programme, supported by the Arts Council England, the Garfield Western Foundation and the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office. A Voyage to Antarctica was presented by me, Alok Shah, and produced by Jessica Norman. Ben Hewis is digital producer, and music and sound design is by Alec Hughes. See you next week.